we're back for another episode. <laughs> we're back for another episode of On Air. I know, that's never happened before. Um, for guys that are listening, Jack just counted me in like a producer and like one, two, three and tapped me in. And was, that's never happened before. I don't know what. Listen, this is a whole new level of professionalism listen, for are, 2020. Listen, we're stepping up. We are stepping up. Um, we are back for another episode of On Air With. And today we have my friend Grace Toulouse in the, uh, in the studio. And I'm super excited to have you. Oh, thank you, Janelle. Thank you for having me here. It's been really wonderful to get to know you. And I feel so lucky that I'm here in Dallas today in your studio. Yeah, thank you. And we, for those of you who don't know, I know you guys follow us on Instagram and everything. So we're recording this episode a little bit before we release it. But um, in March, we had uh, an event where you had a, a, a book signing um, at Interabang and it yeah. last, it was last night for us, but it was a great event. How do you feel about that? How did I've, you I feel great. My Both my parents decided to travel with me on this leg of my book tour, so I feel lucky that they came with me, and they made, made, met up with some old friends from when we first immigrated to the United States, and then um, and those friends ended up moving to Dallas uh, 30 years ago, so it was really incredible to be reunited with them and talk about our old days here in the States. And also, it was a really nice um, group of folks last night. I felt really lucky. It was it was a really good event. Chris, what did you think? You yeah. like you had an opportunity. So I was there, but you know, I was behind the camera, you know, just <laughs> I was I was doing the video thing. Um, but I, I really I had an opportunity to just kind of watch and pay close attention to the audience especially and it was really a good crowd. Like they were all really supportive and really understood, you know, what, what the conversation was about and and I thought like the audience participation, that conversation that you all were able to have just about that shared experience of immigration and of of just what life is like in America when you are anything aside from the norm, whatever that's supposed to be. Uh, I thought it was, it was it was like kind of a really nice healing space. I thought people yeah. like really got some stuff off their chest that were really important. And yeah. Yeah. I, I loved it. That's that's yeah. It was a very it was a very warm, a, a nice healing space. That's a good way to describe it. It it did seem like, it seemed like a safe space, which is what made it healing. I mm -hmm. think it yeah. seemed like people felt safe to share or to tear up or to cry. Like they they felt safe to do that. So that's really cool. Um, for people who are maybe hearing about your book for the first time, tell us about the body papers before we kind of dig into some of the things there. Sure. So The Body Papers is my first book that I've published. It's a memoir. And I wrote pieces that became The Body Papers over a period of probably 10 years. And they were all pieces that I needed to write for some reason. Like I never thought I was writing a book. But there was all these things that I needed to talk about and express that just talking actually didn't work for me. I needed to use the process of writing to explore what I thought and felt and wanted to say. And it was through that process of writing that I found what I needed to express. Mm -hmm. And I feel so, um, it feels great to know that like the thing that I did um, might open a door in readers for them to um, say something that they need to say, which I think happened last night. Mm -hmm. Even if folks hadn't read the book, I think um, all of us together, everyone who was there, helped create this atmosphere where people felt comfortable talking about their lives. Mm -hmm. um, and they weren't defensive, they just wanted to share, like this is the truth of my experience as an immigrant or as a woman or as a person in this country. And I, I thought that was 
wonderful about last night. Yeah. I right off the the back in the <clears throat> in the book as I read it it really starts off with you returning to the Philippines, right? And so remind me again at what age did you move to the US? I came to the US at 2 years old. Okay. So this is your home. Like this is Oh yes. This is this is this yeah. is most of your memories if not all of your memories are are here, but yeah. you returned to the Philippines was this your first time or you had gone back to travel? I had gone um, back to the Philippines intermittently, but very briefly. Okay. Like I have friends who are Im Filipino immigrants and they'll go to the Philippines once or even twice a year. We didn't do that. We didn't return for almost 20 years mm -hmm. because we were undocumented. Um, and so once we finally had the authority or the, the credentials to travel again, we went to the Philippines briefly, like I would say 10 days. Um, and so then every 10 years or so, or every several years, we would go for um, at least 10 days, but not like never very much longer than that, just because of the ways that our schedules are here in the States. We don't have long periods of time to take off. But I had this opportunity in 2015 to live in the Philippines um, for six months, and I was supported by um, the full as a Fulbright scholar. And so I went with my husband for six months and we lived there and it was I'm really life-changing to be able to spend time in a place that I thought of as home. And once I lived there, I realized, no, this is actually not home. The United States is my home. What, I'm, I'm interested and curious in terms of, of that connection in terms of home. What were the feelings of connection or like disconnection that it, what are those feelings? What did that bring up? I mean, I'm used to living in a society where people don't really know who Filipinos are or where the Philippines is. Um, you know, maybe they've heard about us as like a joke about, you know, eating dogs or something, but really like we're, we're quite invisible in this country. Um, maybe a little, you know, we're, we're very populous, but we're a little bit invisible. Um, and so to go to the Philippines and be in a place where all the billboards, the politicians, every worker is a Filipino, um, it was just overwhelming because I'm used to being in spaces where if I spot another Filipino, I will go up to them and talk to them. You know, um, I'll see them and I'm like, they sort of look like they're Filipino. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll talk to them and just say hi and say like, oh, I'm Filipino. Um, but then I go to the Philippines where it's like, no, everyone is Filipino and mostly. Um, and it was wonderful and overwhelming. Um, people were so friendly to me. But what they re when my interactions with strangers reiterated the fact that I was American because the reason they wanted to talk to me was to speak in English and to talk about America. They would say, oh, you're American. And I'd say, yeah. And then we'd talk about like, what's it like in the United States and all of this stuff. And they would practice speaking English with me. I mean, they speak English in the Philippines anyways, but they you know, could speak with me at length in, in English. Um, I tried to speak Tagalog, which is the language I grew up with, um, but I, I'm so poor at it that um, I have about a toddler's uh, vocabulary, so we didn't get very far. I would try. I would In like customer service interactions, I would try, but they heard my accent and immediately like wanted to switch, switch over yeah. and um, speak in, in English. You know, it's, it's funny you say that. So my experience going to South Africa felt very much like that, where I was like, oh, 
like almost everybody that I see is black and I'm not Mm -hmm. used. It was almost like stepping onto an HBCU campus or something like that's weird. There aren't really spaces like that. And there it, it, you do feel disconnected, I think. But like, even when I went, I remember thinking the first thing that people would say when they knew I was from the U S and especially when it, I, I tear up when I think about it, but they would always hug and say, welcome home, my sister. And, oh right, my right, and it's this Aww. this thing that you yeah. never know, like that connection. So yeah. I'm interested to know that you lived there for like yeah. six months. What was that feeling like? It was, was there ever like a, a twinge of like this is still a little bit of home, even though definitely. I mean, I that's why I think I felt so welcomed and comfortable, even though there was a difference. This. The Philippines is the place where I was born. Mm-hmm. It is where all my family come from. We have a you know very long history there, and so there is it is a homecoming. I mean, mm-hmm. I say that the United States is my home, but there's this ancestral home yeah. um, feeling that I got there. Um, and you know, my husband actually traveled to Africa. He's African American. He grew up in the South, and he went to um, Africa for the first time. He went to Kenya, um, and he also had the same experience of saying he would take pictures of billboards and all kinds of things. And he said, it's just normal to be black yeah. in, in where he was. And he said it was funny because people, some people even thought, considered him white. Um, and he was just confused, like, wait, what? I'm American. And they said, oh, yeah. but I don't know. It was this funny thing where, where um, some people in Kenya were, were uh, categorizing him as like white American. Um, but you know, there's this warmth, and, and it's not just for me. I think it's a warmth that other people experience in the Philippines as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't want to, like, categorize societies or something, but maybe there are ways that people are used to being socialized. And I would say that, like, the Philippines, in my experience, is that there's this warmth and this welcoming and an attention to family and relationships that is kind of different mm-hmm. here, Um in the U.S. and so I really appreciated that and um, yeah and just like a curiosity like people weren't really curious about my academic or professional achievements what we talked about is family like oh where are you from what is your family name oh do you know this person and the whole reason for that conversation was to find out how and if we are connected and so that shows me about this priority about connection as opposed to hierarchy sometimes my experience in the states is that we want to find out oh like where do you work um how high up in the hierarchy are you what um college did you go to what fraternity or sorority like it's a hierarchical relationship. And my experience, even with like strangers, like taxi drivers and stuff, is like, where is your province? What is your family name? And I would inevitably, like they're working people, me and them, would work really hard to find common ground. Oh, I've been to that province. Or, oh, my somebody, somebody knows someone from there or something. So that, yeah. that in and of itself is like a connection-based culture, which is really, I think that's beautiful. And when you... It's also a little sad when you put it in the context of like hierarchical versus connection, but also explains a lot. Yes. You say that. Yeah. I know Chris um, has been, we, we always like, especially at the beginning of a season, we talk about like different topics that we might want to talk about. And one of his um, that we kind of toyed with was this concept of language. Um, and so I was wondering, Chris, like when you hear her say like, her level of Tagalog and 
being in there, I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of how language connects us or disconnects us, mm, or like mm-hmm. what you might be wondering. Well, I, I, I thought initially, I thought it was very interesting that you said that um, that you spoke about a, a toddler's level of Tagalog. I mean, when did you stop speaking it? Did you stop speaking it at that relatively young age? Yes, yeah. So I came to the U.S. when I was two, and all the people around me, I mean, that's when I was um, acquiring language. And But, you know, I lived in a Tagalog world. Like the mm-hmm. my the helper, the, I had a, um, a woman probably in her teens who was stayed with me 24-7, and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, unless she had time off. She was my caretaker, and so she, I'm sure I just heard Tagalog all the time. And it is in my brain, and I have an emotional reaction when I hear it. Mm-hmm. Even to us, I write this about it, this in the book, but like even to a stranger, I'll feel this warmth and connection, like um, like a family feeling when I hear the language. Um, and I don't even know what they're saying, but it's an emotional response. And my parents um, uh, intentionally stopped speaking to us in Tagalog when we moved to the States because they w- thought that we would be discriminated against because of our accents. So that it, they wanted our accents to be as American, in this case it was Boston accent, um, as much as possible. Which is its own right, regional right. accent. Yes. <laughs> Which I had. I had the Boston accent my whole life. I'll look at old video footage of me growing up and I'm dropping all my R's. I speak like the people around me mm-hmm. and it wasn't until college that I changed I think um, I don't know it might have been conscious on my part but there was this way that I felt people treated people with the Boston accent and I think yeah. I just started to shift and change uh, the way that I spoke and that's that's very interesting right. in terms of like so so you started out with one language and your parents were worried that would be stigmatized, so you kind of switched to another language. Only to find. That that was stigmatized, right. and so you like switch, And then yeah. you get to the Philippines, and it's like, oh, now I wish I had the first one right. still. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's a loss that comes with immigration. Of course, there's a lot to gain, but I think also people probably should acknowledge the loss. And mm-hmm. I think my parents didn't talk about it, but I think they were grieving for a while and maybe even moments now, like today, what are they doing? They dropped me off here at the studios and they're going in search of Filipino food because they mm-hmm. know that there's Filipino restaurants and things in Dallas. And so there's always this like longing for a taste or the sound or the music or the products of that place. Yeah. You yeah. know, one of the things that I thought in, in speaking about your parents as well and like listening to listening well yes because I actually listened I I I was explaining some I was explaining this to somebody just as an aside um in reading your book I bought your book of course when you and I met this past summer um and so when I started reading your book I thought okay well I I want to I wanted to read it more than once especially in terms of like being able to ask you questions at the event last night and so then I thought okay well I'll get the audible um, so I could at least listen to it on the car when I'm going to work and, and stuff like that. And then I found myself not listening to it in the car so that I could wait till I got to the office or home so that I could listen to it while I was reading your book. I was mm. such a nerd with your book. I swear. I was like, wait, okay, because it's something about oh, yeah. hearing Y'all, it in your voice. Well, I mean, I guess if you're watching like some of our content, you may see Janelle's book here. Maybe I'll zoom in on it at some point. But y'all got to see like there are nine million and seven tabs. <laughs> I'm sure that it is written all over. We were just talking before the show about how it's like it's like a loved on book like the Velveteen Rabbit. 
Uh, and and I just need you to appreciate, it. you know. But like, snaps to you for being a thorough and prepared, <laughs> you know, interviewer, book, Thank event you. host. Thank you. It's yeah. such a compliment. Thank you so much for taking such care with my book and. It really, it, I don't even know how to express it. It means so much to me. Really yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing. And I think, so like what I really loved about listening to you tell the story about your family is, and, and what actually st- stood out to me <clears throat> was the word privilege because you used it a couple of times and you talked about not knowing that you needed to check your own privilege at certain places. And I, th- what really stood out to me just right off the bat is talking about your experience in the Philippines. Your parents were both doctors. Um, and so we're talking about professionals. You had, was a, what's a yaya? Just to... Um, a yaya is um, a helper. Okay. Call, I mean, but there's all these ways that we code what that labor is, okay. right? It's um, domestic work, um, people would call that work being a maid. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's all these ways we keep coding and coding. And in some ways, it's good. There's, there's, we should show respect to that kind of intimate labor that happens in a home. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is that income disparity in the Philippines is so huge that you could hire, even as a middle class, we, we would consider middle class income, um, because the income disparity is so huge, you could have a bunch of folks working for you at a quite a low wage. Mm-hmm. Um, things have changed that um, there's more protections for domestic workers in the home. They have something called 13th month salary, uh, where you pay an extra full month salary um, in December, I believe. Um, there's days off. There's, there's things like that that have been um, institutionalized as policies to help protections. But of course, that labor is still very vulnerable. You're working in a home. You don't have you know, a lot of economic or educational power. That's why you're working in someone's home. Um, It's, you know, it's very complex. Um, And yeah, I had, you know, in this, at least at the time when I was growing up, I mean, we, my parents had a lot of helpers and they were used to growing up with helpers Mm -hmm. as well. So Um, your parents grew up middle class as well? um, I think it's hard to, like, I know for sure, I think it's hard to say. So my mother, um, their their uh, ancestors were landowners. So that is like landowning wealth. Okay. They had sugar and rice plantations, right? So their clan was powerful, which meant they had economic and political power in their province. If you go to the province and you go to city hall, you will see my relatives as like um, politicians and people who, who let, held power. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they moved to the city, I think they lost some economic power. They weren't landowners anymore, and they needed to work. But they still had that, that um, generational wealth um, you know, paving the way for them. In my father's situation, their people were farmers. They didn't own land until later. They they were able to send their children to school, or they sent one person to school, and that person made money and helped send the other children to school. And over time, they built up wealth, and so towards the middle to, to the end of my grandparents' life, they did buy farmland. Um, which So there's just this, these ways that people 
you know, um, in my family uh, changed classes or moved in classes. Also, um, if I can, that's yeah. that's really fascinating based on like the little I know about the Philippines, like class, I mean, we wildly overstate how common class change is in America, but especially in the Philippines, it's it's pretty difficult. That's a big deal for your yes, father's family. Feet, right? Yes, yes. Um, yeah, and that particular um, first person who went to college ended up going to medical school, then ended up having a long-running TV show in the Philippines about health. So wow. it's kind of funny. Like if people heard of my name, it's because they'd heard of my uncle's last, my, my uncle's name and he was on TV. Like a, a prominent while. health educator. That's, yeah. that's incredible. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So then that, of course that, that leads me to two questions. The first one is why would your parents leave? Yeah. And I think that especially when people are talking about immigration, I feel like there's this assumption that everybody that comes either they don't have money or like they're just a lot of different assumptions of what brings an immigrant to the U.S. with without recognizing that all immigrants, of course, are not created equal and that all immigrants have their own stories. And it doesn't mean that you're running from something. It doesn't mean that you don't have money. It doesn't mean whatever these thoughts are. Also, moving to another country, for those who don't know, is expensive. So when you say that about immigrants, right. like, it's hard. Very often, immigrants will be among the relatively more privileged people from you know wherever they're coming from because they had the money. They to, had the money like, to leave. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm wondering, A, with your your experience and your knowledge of other immigrants, because of course th that is your community, what is what are some of the experiences there, and B, what brought your parents to the U.S.? Sure. So I can speak to what happened post 1965, where um, immigration opened up, um, and there was more opportunity for um, Filipinos to come here. What also happened was that there was a shortage in the U.S. Um, after the war in Vietnam for um, engineers and medical professionals, and so that's why you see um, an influx of professionals from English speaking the English-speaking world, so oh. post-colonial worlds, right, where yeah. you'll have a little bit of an easier time, um, like places like India, mm -hmm. too. Um, mm -hmm. So for my, um, I was, you know, at dinner with my parents and their their friends, and they were talking and reminiscing about what brought them here. Um, so in medical school, about half of their medical school graduates would leave the Philippines and go abroad, mostly to the United States. And there were recruiters in the Philippines um, who made money off getting these Filipino medical students and nurses to sign contracts to fill in where labor was needed in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So that's how, and they just went anywhere. Like my parents were talking last night. They said, I didn't never heard of Chicago. I didn't know what Milwaukee was. But of course I would take an opportunity to work in the United States. Mm -hmm. They looked at the m amount of money it would be, and it was exponentially more than anything they could make in the Philippines. So economic opportunity was the big driver over everything, over comfort, over the snow. Like, it didn't matter. It was like, wow, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and they also grew up knowing about the United States. Music, they loved, I mean, it were, it's a former U.S. colony, so they knew food, culture, movies. They already um, had experience with the United States, so it wasn't that they were going somewhere that they had no knowledge or experience or language skills at all. Mm -hmm. They had 
had some sense. I mean, school is taught in English in, in the Philippines, so they had a sense of what it would be like. Um, so really, economic opportunity was the driver. And my parents fully expected to return to the Philippines. My mother, um, I mean, in some ways, she would have lived a more comfortable life. She could have still continued her career as a radiologist. She would have continued having someone taking care of all the household labor. There was someone to take care of each of her children. There was another person just to do the laundry. There was another person just to clean the house. There was another person just to clean, to cook. So, you know, and another few people to drive various family members to work. She had all of her family around her to socialize with. Um, so she was, you know, anxious to get back home um, after they just thought they'd be in the States for a few years. And I write about this in the book, but like when you go somewhere, you can be changed by that place. Mm -hmm. And my parents were changed by the two years they spent here. And so my father did seek out continued opportunities after his contract was over, his initial contract was over. Um, and you know, I think it's been. I'm, I think both of my parents are really glad we made our lives in the United States. You know, we've the the opportunities that they've had, their children have had. I think are just really different, and they like those opportunities, and that's why they did seek out coming here. Um, you know, I think some people choose to stay home, and that's you know great too. That's another choice. And we've had family members that will come to the United States and try it out, and say like, "No, I want to go back home. I don't like it here." Yeah. And so you know, they have such big families that like they have nine siblings in each family. That that's you know, there's people have different tastes in life, yeah. and that's what they wanted. I in going back to your return to the Philippines mm -hmm. where you lived for the six months that you were there, I'm interested in knowing uh, about this privilege and what it was like to toggle between those because you talk a lot about you know growing up and and racism that the racism that you experienced as a child um, and even as a high school student in certain moments and like having to assert your voice and and constantly being othered but then there's that flip side of going back to the Philippines where you now had money to have a driver whenever you wanted although crossing streets apparently was a feat in and of itself but <laughs> but um, what what was that like I feel like it's really weird when you don't have privilege or when you don't have I mean we're all privileged in some sort of way but when you don't have this huge amount of privilege uh, especially within society to all of a sudden have that privilege what was that shift like for you um I mean, to be honest, it was wonderful, like, because, I mean, that's why we say, like, enjoying benefits and enjoying privileges. I mean, I, I could be aware, I mean, it's okay, it's wonderful, and it's painful, mm -hmm. because I remember, like, we had money, so we had, a, a um, because of the fellowship, I had a paycheck from um, Fulbright, you know, mm -hmm. which I think every month or twice a month, I can't remember, and because of the way that um, the dollar was doing at the time and probably still is that money that 
went a long way. Like I had a lot of purchasing power. And so we could go out to eat and do all these things, you know, without even thinking about it. In the United States, we tend to be much more careful with our money. If we're going to go out to eat at a restaurant, like we're going to do it once a month or we're going to think about it or mm -hmm. something like we mostly just shop and, yeah. and uh, you know, and and do our cooking at home. Um, so it was this way that we enjoyed that um, purchasing power and we would explore restaurants, but that also meant sometimes being in a restaurant and there's, you know, impoverished children right outside the window. I, I remember eating like these famous dumplings in Chinatown one time and there was three girls at the window who had somehow spotted me I don't know how they knew I was American, but, um, you know, I'm eating my dumplings and they're looking at me in the window and like knock, like waving and knocking at the window. And it's like, okay, I'm eating these dumplings and right. It's very visible, like the income disparity. And, um, what does that mean to, I mean, of course we have people who are low income and, um, really struggling in this country, but I think I'm not, they're not so visible to me on a day to day level. I'm not in close contact with them, but I could be touring around and like, I'd go into Star Starbucks and come out and like walk a few steps and there's like a family with a baby living on cardboard. Mm. What, I mean, it's horrifying. Um, I don't even, I still don't even know like what to make of that and what is my role as a human being in that moment to mm. do anything. Um, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I'd give food, but that's like nothing. It's not even, who is that really helping? It's helping in a moment. Yeah. I don't even know. It's, um, it's a huge um, and horrible thing. So, you know, on, on some levels it was wonderful, but I also knew that, you know, my privilege probably comes at the expense of someone else's um, suffering, and, and perhaps that's capitalism. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. But I was aware of them all the time. You know, I enjoyed this place that I lived, which is basically living in an outdoor private mall. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I'm, I when I would walk to my gym, I mean, I could see right over this big wall is um, people living in much, much poorer conditions right over this wall. And I know this exists in other places. Mm -hmm. oh, there's a writer named Kath Kath Catherine Boo, I think, who wrote The Beautiful Forever. She writes about this in India. Um, so there's this way that we don't want to look and, and pay attention, but they're there with us all the time, people who are um, really suffering because of economic um, disparities. So I don't know. It's um, there. I was um, happy that my husband got a little bit of a break from um, the grind, I guess, mm -hmm. of uh, being living as you know a black man in in this country, and so that was nice. And um, yeah, I don't know. It was an odd experience because it was sometimes great, and I loved it, and and it provided me some comfort in life um, to have these privileges. And then other times it was um, deeply uncomfortable because I would stand in a line sometimes to take public transportation. And it was just probably because I decided to do it rather than walk because it was too hot to walk somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I'd stand in the line and then I'd come to realize, oh, I'm standing in a line with workers and they actually stand in this line every day. They stand in the line for an hour mm -hmm. and then they're going to take public transportation for another hour, maybe more, so that they can go home and then they're just going to like eat real quick, rest, and then they're going to get back up and do, and it, do again. it again. 
Um, but I've been lucky to create my life where that I walk to work. Like we don't, we don't own a place. We, we rent a place, but we've done it so that we, cause we've dealt with like traffic before and it was such a hindrance to our life yeah. that we just mm -hmm. decided we're just going to rent like the cheapest place we can close to work so that we can just walk yeah. to mm -hmm. work and get our life back, get time back. And to me, that is much more valuable, um, than, buying a place although you know sometimes we wish that we could buy but we just can't so in the united states where i live yeah. so we just have to make choices like that but they're still pretty good choices they're not yeah. you know there's people at the university where i work they're like really commuting from very far away to um clean office the office space or the classroom space mm -hmm. so as someone who teaches in in the space in a university i'm much more privileged i um there was a an incident um, where you talk about being assumed that like you were assumed the nanny when yeah. you were with your friend who is white, right? Your your friend and her baby, and you were doing the thing that friends do, which is pushing the stroller while your friend was doing something else. Like especially when you're super close, like you know, all of my friends' kids call me Tia J or they call me Auntie Nell or something like that. Like that's that and. I feel like that's something super common, but taking something super common in that moment and it it changed you. And you said you I, I, I wish you if you could tell us a little bit about that story. Specifically, you said it it made you think twice about pushing the stroller again. If you well, could. And also to clarify, did this happen in the U.S.? Did it happen in, in the, the Philippines? Philippines? Sorry. Oh, OK. You. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in the Philippines. There's a way that people usually mark their status or mark with their role, right? So it, for some reason, the trend now is for nannies and helpers and yayas in particular to wear uh, medical scrubs. Mm -hmm. I mean, like when I was in the Philippines with my aunt one time, she had her helper at home wear this uniform that had like a skirt and like an apron sewed into it. It was like a particular uniform that marked someone as a domestic worker. Mm -hmm. But at least when I was there in 2015, the uniform was medical scrubs. So I wasn't in medical scrubs, but I was had just come from the gym, so I was in my exercise clothes. And I was um, helping, we were in like this, my friend's fancy condo area and I was pushing her stroller and chatting with her and she's white and some folks like pushed by me and brushed by me in a really rude way. And then I was like, Oh, and I just wasn't used to it because people read me as American and they don't in phys in public spaces, the way my body is treated as an American is with deference. Like there's space between us. There's a little bit of, you know, more respect or something. And so it was just startling to me. I was like, wow, you just like shoved me and like didn't even say excuse Thanks, me. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, so I was just startled by that. And then I realized, oh, that's what you, that's why you're treating my body this way is because I'm disposable to you. I'm like, like nothing to you. Um, so you would, I mean, it's horrible that people would do that no based on what you do for work, but that is how they did it. They just like ran in front of me to get the elevator first um, and treated me, you know, based on, on how important or how um, unimportant they thought I was. Mm. So, um, yeah, so I, that was, 
you know, I think you just don't know until you know. And so I had, you mentioned crossing the street earlier. I wrote a whole essay about this, but I was very anxious about crossing the street because cars didn't behave in the ways that I expected them to, which is to respect a crosswalk or even without a crosswalk to respect a pedestrian and the fact that you are the one in power if you're in a 2,000 pound car, mm -hmm. you can do the damage. Um, so you should respect the person that doesn't have the power but that's not how it was. Um, but until I, and my, my friend who's white um, actually was, didn't have that experience because people did stop their cars fully to let her cross. And I asked someone about it because I just couldn't believe that, that they would treat, again, my body differently than her body. And the response was like, oh no, we're afraid of white people or we're afraid of the white foreigners and what they would do to us if we hit them. Like we're afraid of getting sued or getting in trouble, but they're not afraid of hitting a Filipino body and what would happen. And you know, my husband was tapped by a car. Here, if you hit someone with your car, even so-called tap them, mm -hmm. that's that's like bad. That's yeah. a big deal. You would stop yeah. the car, like exchange information or something. Yeah. But this person like didn't even acknowledge that he hit my husband. It was just like, keep moving. And wow. so I don't know. It was really odd. There's something that you just said that like I am going to like want to pull out and like plaster all over the world, but not just with like with respect to the story, but also in life when you are the person with power it's, it's talking about like the responsibility that comes with that and you should respect the people without. And I wonder if people were to hear that and really realize specifically like politically or economically, you have the power and instead of making all of these decisions that protects that power, maybe having a little bit of respect for the people who don't have that power and keeping them in mind would be... I don't know, world changing maybe? Just a little? I don't <laughs> right. It's like that, I, re, I was growing up in the time when like Ben and Jerry's ice cream was getting really big. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I remember about them before they sold the company is that they had this um, equation. I think like they didn't want to make more than seven times the lowest paid worker in their company. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And, but then, you know, they sold the company. And, and then, so then, right, no, yes. it didn't happen. But, <laughs> but that happened at first, right? And I thought, wow, like you would respect everyone who's made your company what it is that you don't want to be paid more than seven times what the lowest paid worker is and it's this way of thinking and taking care of everyone there that I mean I think now CEOs I think something like 200 times there's like this you know sometimes the person at the very top of the pyramid gets paid so much more than mm -hmm. than the lowest paid person but you know it's a way of, sh of taking care of people and respecting what they do for you and your company and also it's maybe thinking about ourselves as a society like of course you want to take care of you know if you don't if you have this society where people are getting hit and injured, that's bad on so many levels. And it's the same as, um, you know, thinking about like the police and incarceration state, you know, that, that affects everybody, that affects the society. Every person that gets incarcerated affects a lot of people. That person is the breadwinner or a family member. It hurts so many folks and for what, you know? Um, yeah. So I think if we could all think about what power we hold. I mean, I think about it as a teacher all the time because I know I've been hurt by people in authority, sometimes teachers, um, and I've met people who've been hurt by them too. And so I try very hard to understand the power that I yield. Um, 
And right now I'm teaching my 16-year-old niece to drive, and that's one of the things that I try to get across to her is the um, power that she holds as a driver um, and to, to understand that. You know, like even if the person is in the wrong, the biker or the pedestrian is wrong, it doesn't matter. Like you stop your car in a safe way so that you do not hurt them because um, you'll be the one doing the damage. I still have 12,000 questions. Okay, so we're recording this on the International Women's Day. And so one of the things um, that I and I said this last night, I felt so seen in so many different parts, which also, you know, I've never been an Asian American woman, never been a Filipino woman, but I still, there's still this, this connection, which also tells you how much we're all alike, which I think is beautiful. And the way that you wrote it, I feel like, because it, it touches on so many different things. Also, totally fangirled and texted like all my friends to get your book. Like my oh, sister is like, thank you so oh, much. cool. Um, so, and and it's and the reason for that is because it touches on so many different things. And one of those things that you talked about is womanhood and what makes a woman a woman. You talk about um, body in in particular. You, you know, you open up about your your health. Um, concerns and and having a preventative surgery and and what that looks like, especially because we're talking about breast, women's breasts, and that's a very big part of being a woman, especially, you know, the way that we treat women. Like that's a that's a marker. Um, you even talk about you know the position of a woman. You talked about your mother's job and like what she gave up, even though she was a radiologist and like wanting to go back to being. A doctor, but n not being a doctor and really being somewhere to support, being in a supportive role for her husband. And I wonder, in all of these discussions that you have in terms of what makes a woman a woman, have you come up with any answers? Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is also, um, you know, continues to be complicated as we start to think about um, gender binary constructions, mm -hmm. right? So one of my nibblings is gender non-binary, mm -hmm. um, you know, and they've um, probably known for a long time, but because there's more conversation about the gender binary, they've felt comfortable as a, I think, 11-year-old coming out as gender non-binary, mm -hmm. and now they're 13, which is an incredibly brave thing to do. And I love that they don't feel like there isn't a place for them. Like they're, I mean, it's still, some, they still sometimes struggle because they have to tell people I use they pronouns and things and there probably will be future struggles. But um, I, I really am grateful for those folks who have started and insisted on this conversation about gender, the gender binary, um, so that my nibbling can, you know, exist um, mm -hmm. and not feel bad or, or like, abnormal or something. And for me, when I was deciding to get preventative surgeries to remove my breasts and my ovaries, which are organs that we, um, you know, second, like when I was taking like science classes and stuff, like we talk about like puberty and like your secondary sex characteristics. Well, those are some of those secondary sex characteristics that come to maturity is your breasts and your ovaries. And so when I, in my 30s, had to make a decision about removing them, there was at least a moment 
moment where I thought, oh, like, what does that do to my gender? And then, of course, I realized, well, it has nothing to do with gender, actually. Like, I can remove both of those things and still identify in terms of my gender expression as a woman or a female or whatever way you want to call it. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's still an ongoing, really interesting um thing to think about like you know why do we have these constructions of gender and it, again it's a story that we're telling and why like who is it for how is it helpful what does it do it's it's a one of the earliest stories we tell about each other is around gender you know you we want to know before a person a human is even born you want to know like oh what is the sex as we call it people have these like crazy gender reveal parties that I've heard about on Instagram I guess mm -hmm. and like so it seems incredibly important I remember learning in psych 101 it stayed with me all these years from first year of college where if you they did a study where like they would tell people or like signal to people that this newborn baby is either a boy or a girl there's like a pink blanket or a blue blanket mm -hmm. and people speak and treat that that you know newborn human very differently based on what they think that baby is in terms of um, gender, female or male. And so it's a, a really powerful and early story, um, but what does it mean? And, and um, you know, I, I see that for my mother, it meant that she becomes the supporter. And she even told my father in a kind of proud way, like, or me at some point, she was talking about how all these women who were behind powerful men and women who had done all this work and um, written their husband's speeches and stuff like that, and that's important, that's labor that is invisible and doesn't get recognized, but, you know, what if that woman could do her own work and, like, come out on her own, especially if she's writing the words that her husband says. I mean, there's that movie from a couple of years ago. I can't remember what it is, but like the woman had written the, the um, oh, person's books. Oh, yeah, books. yeah, yeah. The wife. The wife. Yeah, is with it? Glenn Close. Okay, I think. there you go. Yeah, that was what that was all about. Like, oh my gosh, like, what, why couldn't women just be out on their own? And, mm. and, and, uh, you know, but, you know, I don't know. People see it's, it's just, it's interesting. And I hope we continue to, um, try to open up those notions of what is possible for people to do. But like, I remember talking to my grandmother, I was in college, I think I was taking like horseback riding lessons and I was also, no, I was, what was I doing? No, I was taking Taekwondo in college and I was like a blue belt or something. I like, I really loved it. I was high up in it. And she very directly said to me like, you need to stop doing that. And I'm like, why? And she said, no, 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 that's for men. No one is going to marry you. Um, you need to like do, if you want to do a sport or be active, do horseback riding. Like, I'm like, where am I going to get a horse? Like, where, <laughs> where I, but to do this horseback riding. But um, anyways, like there were very clear notions of what is possible for a woman. And I heard it all my life. It's like, oh, you're in the sun too much. No one's going to want to marry you. You're going to get too dark. Oh, I played soccer for a long time. Oh, your legs are too muscular. Like, I mean, again, it was always like, no one's going to want to marry me kind of thing, as if that's my only value is to be a, a wife. I, I have one more question, um, because and, and I kind of want to look at it from a different way. We always talk about why is it important for people to share their story? And I feel like we've kind of touched on why it's important for someone to share their story. It's about being seen and, and heard and, and respected. But why is it important for people to seek out other stories? 
I think if you want something to exist in the world, you have to give it your attention. I mean, we have an attention economy right now. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think it's, it's again, power. It's like if you, people probably don't even realize, I didn't even realize that all the stories that I saw on TV and in books were not, were about white people, frankly. Mm -hmm. Like, and it limited my imagination about who is a so-called normal person. People use this all the time. They're like, yeah. oh, you know, like normal actors. I'm like, wait, just because someone's a person of color doesn't mean they're not normal. But, you know, whiteness is the norm. Um, and so that's what people are used to seeing. So I think we have to show the arbiters of what gets made that there's an audience like audiences are powerful you as a single book buyer movie ticket holder whatever it is like is powerful like my husband will take he has this group um of uh, he runs this black men's group of college students and they when a film comes out even if they it got bad reviews or something, if it's by like um, features um, black characters or um, black creators, they will use their economic power to buy tickets and go and sit in those seats, even if the place is empty, mm -hmm. which has happened a few times because they will, you know, they want to use that, what little power mm -hmm. they have in that moment or in that particular economy to sh say like, well, there is an audience. Yeah. So I think it's, you got to seek it out and, and ask for it. Okay. Well, I think that that is uh, about where we're going to wrap up today. But this is really like a really fascinating conversation. Thank you and so much. And this one and also the one earlier. Last the, night, the, yeah. the other one last night. So I'm um, really excited for the listeners to get to see some of what we did yesterday and yeah. see some of this and hear some of this. And um, and I guess we'll wrap up. So uh, don't be afraid to tell your story. And, and thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.